Last time on Where in the World Are Those Utah Propositions? I believe that direct legislation should be pushed as rapidly as possible. Through it, only can I see the reestablishment of a democracy upon this continent. It was, it was a radical idea. It flew in the face of the more conservative approach that the Founding Fathers had taken. There were fears that this would lead to mob rule. But at the same time, majority voters, the Republican majority voters in this state, know, know that this doesn't usually benefit them. That's why it's hard. The great trouble now will be to get the legislature to adapt legislation and make it effective, as our legislature will be Republican and no doubt generally opposed to the principle. That has to do with commercial interests on the part of the LDS Church also, and their concern about giving too much power to the common people. On November 6th, Utah voters went to the polls and did something unprecedented. They made Utah only the second state in the union to approve direct legislation or direct democracy. The year was 1900. Now, we the people could propose, vote on, and even roll back laws at our choosing. Break out your dancing shoes, Utah. Things are gonna change. Only, things pretty much stayed the same. Significant obstacles were placed in the way of voters to corral and dilute their newly established legislative power. Which is why, in the 118 years that followed, only four voter laws were ever enacted. But something changed in 2018, and Utah voters again went to the polls in an unprecedented way. When the dust settled, a record three propositions had passed in a single year. In this episode, we're going to look at those propositions, where they came from, what problems they were intended to address, and what it took to get them through a general election. I'm J.P. Romney, in association with Alliance for a Better Utah. You're listening to Where in the World Are Those Utah Propositions? This is Episode 2, The Impossible Midterms. Prop 2 started as, um, as an effort of patient advocates on the Hill back in 2014, 2015, and 16. We tried to push for policy for patients to get access to cannabis. That's Christine Stenquist of Truce, a medical cannabis advocacy group headquartered in Salt Lake City. Judging by the makeup of our state legislature, Utah is not the most liberal of states. You can add to that a religious hegemony that eschews controlled substances and who recently announced that, quote, marijuana is an addictive substance which should be avoided except under the care of a competent physician and then used only as prescribed. Those people familiar with the Mormon Church's stand against tobacco, alcohol, tea, and coffee aren't going to be too surprised that cannabis use, unless prescribed by a, quote, competent physician, generally gets swept into the prohibition sack. Because isn't medical cannabis just a slippery slope to Mormons alleviating their glaucoma by toking up to reruns of impractical jokers? Um, I... I don't agree with that. I know that the concern is that <clears throat> we're going to see just everybody wanting adult use in every state. I think um, local state politics will dictate what type of programs the state's going to see. So 
I, you know, I don't see Utah or even other conservative states going that route right away. It may take years for us to acclimate to the, the idea of medical use and understand that, that cannabis isn't to be demonized. We have alcohol and that kills more people than cannabis ever will. I think we lose 88,000 people a year to alcohol and not to cannabis. I would rather have, you know, another bowl or, you know, another, I vaporize, so another bag of cannabis than I would to have a drink of alcohol than a glass of wine. It, it is preferred. It doesn't damage the body to the same degree. So if that's the person's choice of substance to lighten their load, I mean, then that's, uh, that should not be a problem, but we have to educate to that. You know, we have to help those who have bought into the propaganda for years and decades to understand it, it was meant to drive fear so that you wouldn't use it. And now we have to change and re-educate. I'm a daughter of a narcotics officer, so I understand the programming that's gone behind the Just Say No campaign, DARE campaigns, the anti-drug campaigns. So we're not going to just turn the tide quickly on a sharp dime just because we have patients who are who are truly benefiting from this um, this herb. Attitudes about the medicinal uses of cannabis have been changing in the United States for years, enough so that a majority of voters in religiously conservative Utah passed the proposition in an open election, and this despite efforts by Mormon and civic leaders to publicly and privately undermine the campaign. This is kind of interesting because you were LDS. You said your father was a narcotics officer. Yes. So how did your thinking on cannabis evolve from kind of prohibition to medicinal or adult use? Um, in 1996, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor, an acoustic neuroma. I had partial removal of the, the tumor and they hit a blood vessel when I was in surgery. Um, I hemorrhaged, slipped into a coma. I had stroked. And I had complications that stemmed from that. I wasn't able to rejoin the workforce. I had to go on disability, state assistance, food stamps, and led a very homebound and house, you know, bedridden life in tremendous amount of pain and on a lot of narcotics and a lot of just pharmaceutical drugs for years and years and years. Oftentimes during bouts of, of bad spells, um, medication would be adjusted and raised to accommodate the pain level I was in. I was in a pain contract with my physician because I, I have a very, very rare pain condition called trigeminal neuralgia, occipital neuralgia. So it affects half of my face. I have burning, pain, sharp stabbing a cane across the face, and it's not treatable through narcotics. There's nothing that will treat it. Um, it's also called the suicide disease because most sufferers wind up taking their lives because the pain is is truly unbearable. But over 16 years, I started to realize that I was in a very, very vicious cycle that was not going to improve, and I was still quite young. And I was looking at what my options were and had a very honest conversation with my physician about what therapies are going to actually work for me. And we were running out of options. And I was losing weight quite rapidly, cyclical vomiting, tremendous amount of pain. And I wanted to try cannabis to help alleviate the nausea so I can get back on this pain medicine and, and get back to some sort of resemblance of health. I started reading things about cannabinoids and whole plant and terpenes and flavonoids. And I was like, what is this bizarre world? What is going on? You know, I thought it was just weed, you know, and... 
that's that's what led me to a whole new world about cannabis and the science behind it and started reading testimonials about other patients cancer patients cancer patients that had malignant cancer i have a benign brain tumor and i'm talking about patients that have you know stage three cancer are using cannabis to help alleviate their symptoms and i was i had to try and um that's that's what led me down the road to to going through the hoop jumping of do you have a contact that smokes cannabis can i get a bag and the first time i used it i got some relief from my nausea i was i was thought that's what would happen and that's what happened so i continued using it but i also was documenting the the effects it was having for me it was very rudimentary just in a journal like you know how to how to toke off the pipe today and you know, I documented that it, my pain subsided. I described what was happening on my face. You know, it felt like a warm blanket was just being set on my face. It was soothing. And I just felt distant from the pain. The cannabis allowed this sort of, you know, there's a higher euphoria that happens with opioids. That's why people take them. <laughs> you know, it helps distance the, 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 the space between experiencing the pain and not, you know, you, you sort of separate and and cannabis had that effect too and it allowed me to sort of have a reprieve and when you're in chronic constant pain that's all you're looking for is just moments of of reprieve and that's what the cannabis did so I continued using it and after two weeks of using it daily multiple times a day I started walking around my house using my cane and um so I'm very quick not to say cannabis cured me um Cannabis definitely is not a panacea, but it is definitely something patients should have the ability and accessibility to use because it is so amazing at relieving some of these symptoms that a lot of disease states commonly share. I asked Christine what her experience getting Prop 2 on the ballot was and whether or not she was surprised to see it pass. It it was kind of an amazing story, if I can just be honest. Going through um, the legislative process was amazing and eye-opening, and I learned a lot about how we govern in this state, because not every state across the union has the accessibility to the ballot initiative process. So the thought of doing an initiative, though, I was asked to speak back in D.C. Um, about two years before we filed, and I was telling the the audience that we were going to have to file for a ballot initiative, and the audience erupted and applauded and I started crying. I'm known for crying, but I started crying and I thanked them. But I said, this is going to be one of the most difficult things I think we'll, we'll do. I mean, it's really, really tough in a conservative state to pass a ballot initiative in what I would deem, even though I praised, is a weak initiative state. We don't have a lot of teeth behind our initiatives that are passed through the people because I also knew that the legislative body could come in and replace, repeal, completely wipe out and eliminate, and it would feel like we were back at square one. Were you <laughs> were you surprised to see it pass, ultimately? With all the antics that happened at the end, I had faith all the way up to election night that there would be enough people to get it to pass. Um, But I was terrified um, watching the efforts of 78,000 new registered voters come out to vote for Prop 2. It was was a daunting time. 
to, th- to think about it. it. It definitely put me into a state of depression, wondering um, what was going to happen on election night. It was really tough. So I, I had doubts for a moment. I did. I, I thought for sure that the, um, the powers in this state were going to win. And I was just so overwhelmed with emotion when we passed it. It was amazing to see. Christine knows that opposition to cannabis in Utah, at least amongst its leadership, is not new. And by new, I mean this. Drugs steal away so much. They take and take until finally, every time a drug goes into a child, something else is forced out, like love and hope and trust and confidence. Not long ago in Oakland, California, I was asked by a group of children what to do if they were offered drugs. And I answered, just say no. Utah leaders have been banning marijuana for more than 100 years, two decades before the federal government started banning it in 1937. Like the direct legislation movement, Utah trailed just behind the lead pack dog. California was the first to enact legislation against marijuana in 1913. Utah followed two years later. Always a bridesmaid. The timing here is important, though. The Mormon Church forbade marijuana use amongst its members in August of 1915. Two months later, the Utah legislature passed its own prohibition. You wouldn't know this, but why the church banned cannabis is a bit of a hot-button topic. Some historians claim Mormon missionaries spreading the good word in Mexico returned and spread the good herb back here in Utah. Other historians refute that by pointing to a near silence on the topic before 1915. For example, not one article in a Utah newspaper discussed or complained about marijuana, and no Utahn had ever been cited for taking the kush. This latter camp asserts Utah was just following California— barely aware of the demonization of Mary Jane. Now, whether you believe stoned missionaries introduced ganja to the state or not, what's clear is the connection between the Mormon church and the Utah legislature. Religious leaders banned marijuana, then two months later, legislators did the same. Not a shocker in Utah in 1915, but politically significant, a significance that still carries weight today. I asked Christine what she thought the tipping point was in 2018, considering not only the historical resistance to cannabis, but the resistance on the part of the Republican Party, as well as the prolific influence of the LDS Church. That solely rests on those congregation members. It was those active LDS members that were having conversations with their loved ones at the kitchen table, at church, sharing with their brothers and sisters, like, this is my personal story. It was them. They wanted this. And they were trying desperately to get their church to understand the need was there and the desire was great and just to have some compassion so I put all those efforts to to not just the LDS members but that wanted it, but their allies. I am not attacking who and how you worship in your home, and, and I will always respect that for you. But when your 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 leaders in your religion decide to play politics, that's fair game. I'm no longer a member of that church, but 
I love these people so much and fought so hard for them. Like I was so proud of my state. I was so proud of the voters that they came out to vote. And that was so, so important because they proved the point that we've been saying all along. You have to get out to vote. You have to shake off your apathy. You can, in fact, make change happen. And I know so many people are saying, no, look what they're doing. They're undermining our vote. No, no. Voting is only one step in the process. You have to be engaged all the way along. Voting isn't just every four months or every four years, excuse me. It's 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 a constant battle of, of being on top of what's happening in your state. That's what affects change. So if you're mad that they undermined your vote, good. Stay mad. Use that frustration and keep pushing for change. Getting a ballot initiative like Prop 2 passed requires a massive campaign to inform and educate voters. But time, resources, and attention spans are limited. I asked Christine, what's something most people don't know or may have overlooked with Prop 2? Um, I think most people, well, most people don't know when this program is supposed to come online. So let's start with that. Um, March 2020 is when this program is supposed to be online, and that's when people can start. Um, they should be able to go and get their medical cards. The health department's supposed to have, you know, their end of things up and running. Should be up and running. I guess we'll have to wait and see about that. But let's not forget, despite significant resistance from majority political and religious leaders, cannabis, banned in the state of Utah since 1915, was approved by voters for medicinal use a century later passing 53 to 47%. That's one proposition down, two to go. Proposition three was a 2018 ballot initiative to fully expand Medicaid in Utah. So that would have covered about 150,000 people and the state would pay 10% of the cost versus the 32% they pay under the traditional Medicaid. That was Stacy Stanford, health policy analyst at Utah Health Policy Project, a nonpartisan organization advocating for healthcare solutions for underserved Utahns. So Proposition 3 was addressing something that we call the Medicaid coverage gap. So a key piece of the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, was extending health care options to low- and middle-class people through things that were not available before. So this was the individual marketplace where people could sign up and buy private plans. And then they also expanded the Medicaid program as, a, as an even more affordable option for people who are earning less than $17,000 a year for an individual or $35,000 a year for a family of four. However, this was, this was a part of the ACA, this was a part of the law, and then there was a 2012 Supreme Court decision that made it an optional state-by-state -state decision. So it became a real partisan football after 2012. But this is really important because before Medicaid expansion, it's nearly impossible for a childless adult to be covered. Medicaid eligibility was extremely limited to some low-income parents, some low-income seniors, and people with certain qualifying disabilities. So otherwise, it was impossible to get Medicaid. So expansion eliminates all those narrow eligibility categories and simplifies the process so that if your income is low enough, then you're eligible. If you look at the history of ballot initiatives in the state of Utah, not many of them deal with healthcare issues. There's Prop 3, Prop 2, uh, 
there's the Freedom from Compulsory Fluoridation Act of 1976, <laughs> which passed. You might argue that the uh, Utah Clean Water Act in 2004 was health-oriented, though it failed. So, like, four, with two arguably making Utah's health worse. So, two successful healthcare initiatives, both passed in 2018. Now, there have been seven tax initiatives. Why do Utahns care more about taxes than healthcare? I don't know if it's caring more. I think of a lot of it comes down to who has the power to put these kind of initiatives forward. And so a lot of the the little guys, the grassroots groups, the people of us working on the ground, we don't have millions of dollars to fund a ballot initiative. That takes a lot of work to make those connections and those partnerships to get this across the finish line. I asked Stacy what she thought the tipping point might be. Before 2018, Utah voters had passed only a couple of health care ballot measures. So how were voters last year convinced to accept an increase in their sales taxes in order to extend Medicaid coverage to more vulnerable Utahns? Yeah, you know, Utah is a really compassionate state that has overwhelmingly supported Medicaid expansion from the very beginning. I mean, it has polled 50 to 60 percent since 2014. And the the thing that was easier to help it sell, too, is the funding mechanism that we included was really modest. You know, a 0.15% increase in the non-food sales tax that divides out to like it's a penny on a movie ticket. So we found that the people overwhelmingly agreed that it was a bargain to pay a few extra pennies to provide life-saving health care to 150,000 of their most vulnerable neighbors. It wasn't really a hard pitch to make to people. And if the heartstring stories didn't persuade people, there's a really powerful economic argument that comes with Medicaid expansion. You know, Utah stood to gain $800 million per year in tax dollars back from D.C., over a trillion dollars in economic activity, and 14,000 new jobs per year. So if, if if the sad stories didn't work on someone, then the economic argument typically won them over. Even with those strong arguments, it's no easy feat to educate voters ahead of an initiative like this going up on the ballot. I asked Stacy, what was something about Prop 3 that many voters may not know or may have missed? Yeah, so I think something that is really overlooked in a lot of the debate is how much there is a benefit from Medicaid expansion outside of just the enrollee. You know, the benefits of providing more health care doesn't just go to the person who signs up and stop there. The benefit ripples out to medical providers. Hospitals see huge economic benefits. The healthcare industry hires more people. They put money back into goods and services. And then the people who gain health care, they get healthier, they get better jobs, they get a raise, and then they put more money back into the economy. So even if you've never Never met a Medicaid enrollee in your life. You never will, which is impossible. But even if theoretically you're never ever going to meet someone who benefited, never going to touch your life, we all benefit from a healthier economy and a healthier population. And we have to remember that the numbers that we talk about are all people, and these are human lives. And lower income people are more likely to have health issues, and people with health issues are more likely to be lower income. And so while we were waiting for these years, 
people that I met in 2013, 2014, 2015 are no longer with us. People have died while we've been debating this and waiting. And so we told real stories for years. We've been telling real stories and Utahns that resonated with the people. And they really supported this idea of having the power to help their neighbor in the ballot box. Well, 53 to 47 must be the magic number, because roughly the same number of people who voted for medical cannabis also voted for expanding Medicaid coverage. Boom! We're on a roll here. Two propositions passed in one year. Can we go for a third? Can we break the record? We need a slam-dunk initiative, something Utah voters would be certain to pass. So Prop 4 is an anti-gerrymandering ballot initiative. And so what that looks like is an independent commission of people who aren't lawmakers get the first shot at doing the draft of what Utah's new district line should be. Um, And it also creates the ability for anyone to sue if um, what the legislature ultimately comes back with doesn't measure up to those standards that are put in place by Prop 4. That's Lauren Simpson, policy director at Alliance for a Better Utah. Lauren, like most Utahns, believes the tagline, voters should be picking their politicians, politicians shouldn't be picking their voters. And when I say most Utahns here, looking at just the voter numbers from the midterm, that most is razor thin. Counterintuitively so. I asked Lauren how anyone could be for gerrymandering. Who could be against a bipartisan commission drawing fair voter district boundaries? And I asked this knowing full well that Prop 4 passed by an incredibly small margin, just 7,000 votes out of more than a million votes cast. How could this have been so close? That's a really good question. Um, and it, I think the answers that you get kind of depend on who you ask. Um, I think the campaign was surprised by how close the margins were. And there are a number of pretty obvious factors that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, for one, this was Proposition 4, so it's lowest down on the ballot. On ballots, each subsequent question gets less and less participation. So that's something. There's some natural voter drop-off there in filling out ballots. Um, it's also just a really wonky and technical issue, especially compared to the other ballot initiatives that we had this year, which were Prop 2 medical marijuana and Prop 3 Medicaid expansion. People know what those are. They already have opinions on it. An independent redistricting commission, it takes a few minutes to explain, um, to wrap your head around. And so if somebody is new to that idea, it might take a little bit for, for them to understand. It's just a more technical issue. Some other possibilities are that I've heard anecdotally from community leaders and progressive community leaders were that a lot of people just didn't understand what it was. Um, The campaign was really targeting Republican voters, and I think they assumed that their base would naturally understand what this was and vote for it, but I think that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, So I would say a lack of education is probably a factor there too. And then you probably also have a lot of people who are staunchly conservative who see this as, who see this as, you know, a sneaky way to get more Democrats elected. It is true that when people hear, will you support an independent redistricting commission, they may not immediately associate that with gerrymandering. 
And in fact, some people may not be so clear on what the term gerrymandering itself even means. So let's take a moment to step back and look at this word that has become synonymous with a circumvention of our democracy. Anyone who knows the term gerrymandering has likely seen the woodblock illustration from 1812 that depicts the district map of South Essex, Massachusetts. The boundary lines look like this dragon creature curling ominously around the districts below it, totally unnatural, clearly drawn to benefit one candidate over another by choosing the voters they'd like in their district, instead of the other way around. At the time this electoral map was approved by the state legislature of Massachusetts, Elbridge Jerry was the governor, and the map was clearly drawn to bestow advantage to the Democratic-Republicans, Governor Jerry's party in 1812. Democratic-Republicans, which sounds like a great bipartisan movement in 2019, was the party formed by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison to challenge the Federalist Party that Alexander Hamilton was running. As for the Mander part of gerrymander, the distorted South Essex district purportedly looked like a salamander. It doesn't, if you're a person who's ever seen a salamander, but more on that in a second. Elbridge Jerry probably gets a bad rap, since his sole legacy is the creation of a word that means legal political corruption, or, in the very least, a method for politicians to hand-select their voters to ensure that they stay in power. In actuality, Elbridge Jerry was a founding father. His bona fides for that title are impressive. He was a vocal critic of the British almost two decades before the colonies rose up. He took an active role in the Revolutionary War, was elected to the Second Continental Congress, was a signer of both the Declaration of Independence and the Articles of Confederation. He, with just two others, refused to sign the Constitution because it didn't include a Bill of Rights. And when he was elected to the first United States Congress, he was instrumental in drafting and passing that Bill of Rights that we all enjoy today. Elbridge Jerry was the fifth vice president of the United States and even died in the office a year and a half into James Madison's second term. Fun history fact, James Madison's vice president during his first term, the former Continental Army Brigadier General George Clinton, also died while serving as vice president. Neither of Madison's vice presidents were replaced. There was just no vice president at the time. James Madison was killing off his vice presidents is what one could say. <coughs> They'd be wrong, but they could say it. I can only imagine Elbridge Jerry would be spinning in his grave if he knew that all of his accomplishments in service to this country would be buried under the sobriquet that Jerry from gerrymandering. History can be a dick. What can we say? Looking over that notorious 1812 illustration, one might be confused as to how the dragon-like creature could be called a salamander. I mean, there are salamanders all over the Northeast. Why not illustrate the district as a snake, or a scary-looking millipede, or a lunging spider, something reviled by most people? Well, salamanders are associated with a mythical set of folk beliefs that might help to explain it. In addition to the belief that salamanders were resistant to fire, probably why the creature looks more dragon than newt, some salamanders excrete toxins when threatened. 
clear back to the days of Pliny the Elder in Rome, circa 70 AD, folks believed the salamander produced a powerful poison, so much so that a salamander found on a tree was feared to have poisoned any fruit said tree bore. Also, a salamander in a well was thought to be able to kill any person who wandered by and drank the water, a literal poisoning of the well. I asked Lauren if she considers gerrymandering to be a poisoning of democracy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're rigging the system. It's You're intentionally trying to um, unfairly magnify some people's votes and dilute other people's votes. Um, and what that results in is a government that's not truly representative of the constituents. And then I followed up with a totally reasonable question. Um, in France, it was believed that the salamander, from which the term gerrymander is derived, was so poisonous that its breath would cause a person to swell until their skin broke open. Oh my goodness. Do you, th <laughs> do you think that accurately describes frustration around getting Prop 4 passed? <laughs> um, I would imagine so, especially on the, the part of the campaign. Um, this is an issue that Utah has been dealing with for a really long time. Fair redistricting really is not about, you know, which party is the victor in this race. That's the job of campaigns. What, what anti-gerrymandering policies like this one are really about is just making sure that there's a fair playing field and that the system isn't rigged in anybody's favor. It's important to note here that the kind of gerrymandering you were likely to see in the 1800s is not the same toxic beast you see two centuries later in modern gerrymandering with our polling, algorithms, and metadata analyses that can zero in on voter districts like a Bond villain's laser from space. Despite having to carry around the scarlet G on his lapel, Elbridge Jerry didn't even win his next election. That's right, he won the Massachusetts gubernatorial race of 1810. The state legislature drew those famous salamander lines in 1812, and he still lost the next election, which is how he became the fifth vice president of the United States a year later, and the second vice president murdered by the Madison administration. Utah is a state where you can, if you just look at the map of how our congressional districts are divided up. I mean, it's textbook gerrymandering. When you look at Salt Lake County, which is Utah's largest county, it's divided into three separate congressional districts. But the effect that that has is you are diluting a large block of people who would probably not vote to elect Chris Stewart, for example. This probably does not represent what most of his Salt Lake City constituents want. Um, our second congressional district has Salt Lake City and St. George in the same district. And that's and that's absurd. And people in St. George say the same thing. It is absurd that, you know, people uh, that I am in the same congressional district as people in downtown Salt Lake because our issues are so different and we need we need tailored specific advocacy for our community interests. Like the others, I asked Lauren to tell me something the average voter probably doesn't know about Prop 4 an effect they may not have considered. I think what most people don't know about gerrymandering in Utah generally is just how prevalent it is and that it's a, a legitimate problem that we have. Um, I remember learning about this as a college student at 
BYU, I was in this political science class and saw the maps of Utah. And I was just shocked and flabbergasted that this would be happening. It's like, if you want, if you want your party or you want your ideology to win, like you want to win the right way, you want to do it fairly. And I remember even being back then, like, you know, when I was um, more politically conservative than I am now, just feeling really outraged that this was happening and that I didn't know about it until now. Jump back to the founding of our great state in 1896. Just four years later, we approved direct legislation, providing a way for we the people to craft laws and protections for we the people. Who would have thought back then that this conservative, deeply religious state would, in 2018, vote to approve medical cannabis, Medicaid expansion, and anti-gerrymandering measures? Probably no one, since those words would have made no sense to a voter in 1896, but they mean a whole lot to voters in 2019. Voters who expect their elected legislators to honor our Constitution and respect the laws voted on and approved by the people of the state of Utah. Spoiler alert, they aren't doing that. They likely never intended to. Setting a match to the initiatives we passed has been the goal of some members of this legislature from the beginning. How can they do that? How can they get away with hook-shotting our voter propositions into the trash can right over the head of the state constitution? That's the subject of our next and final episode of Where in the World Are Those Utah Propositions? I'm your host, J.P. Romney, in association with Alliance for a Better Utah. Join me next time for episode three, the SBs, the HBs, and the BS. <laughs>